Hi, this is Dr. David, back with the Fresh Start with Dr. David podcast. I hope everybody is having a great week um, coming off this Labor Day weekend. I know it's always usually strange for a lot of people in terms of uh, messing up dates and just kind of being off by a day. I know it always feels that way to me uh, when the week starts off with a holiday. Um, but I hope that you've had a really, really productive, energetic, abundant, prosperous, successful uh, an insightful week. Um, and uh, I'm happy to be back with you. Um, if you would, when you get a chance, definitely check out the most recent episode that I did, the one before this. I did, I believe that I did that episode on Tuesday. It was all about weight loss and the use of drugs that are intended to treat type 2 diabetes that people are using in order to lose weight. And um, I did a full episode where I spoke about that. In particular, I kind of focused in on um, Jillian Michaels, um, the uh, the famous uh, fitness trainer and fitness expert who talked about it. And we both basically talked about the same thing. Uh, a lot of people who have even discontinued um, these drugs uh, over a year ago are still having problems with gut immotility and things like that, where they basically cannot move their GI tract, uh, even after they've stopped the drugs for a year or so. And so that's really, really important. Um, so definitely do that. Um, you'll notice if you're if you're a regular listener of my podcast that I usually do talk about the notion, um, the seesaw principle, which is when you change one thing, you change other things. And that's the whole mechanism behind side effects. The reason why people have side effects from drugs is because when you alter one thing, it's generally um, it's generally going to alter other things too, intended and not intended. And that's the whole reason why drug companies and pharmaceutical companies do trials uh, and studies in order to isolate those and kind of limit them, but they still exist. And so I'm a huge advocate of taking a more lifestyle-based, holistic approach to weight loss. That's covered in my book, The Nutrient Diet, which I would definitely recommend that you check out on Amazon. Um, it's the first book of its kind. It has a 50% approach uh, to diet, nutrition, health, wellness, uh, and weight management through metabolism, physiology and biochemistry where it explains everything that uh, happens to the foods and the food groups that you put in your body and then 50% the psychology of why you make the eating choices that you do and how to change it so definitely change that but in general try to try to take a holistic approach to the things that you do whether it's weight loss uh, exercise uh, fitness training um, other things the more holistic and well-rounded the approaches, the better results. And you're going to prevent a lot of unintended consequences or harms by doing that. And generally speaking, it's also true that the, the more quick and easy um, the method is of losing weight and doing other things, the more likely you are to have unintended consequences that could be long-term. So with that, definitely check out that episode. And during that episode, I also talked about kind of some of the latest studies that have come out about COVID-19 and brain fog and the link uh, or the correlation with clotting proteins associated with COVID-19. Also talked about the energy of the fall. And, and I also talked about healthcare insurance uh, and whether it benefits you or not to have an FSA or an HSA. So definitely check that out. 
Um, so without further ado, I'm so excited. I've got a very, very, very special guest today. I'm, I've been so excited. Uh, he was first um, brought to my attention maybe a month or so ago. Um and I'm so glad that he was able to make time in the schedule. Uh, he's a very, very busy uh, doc, and um, he's an expert in emergency medicine and men's health and a lot of other things. But I'm so, so, so happy to introduce Dr. Parker Hayes. Hello, Dr. Hayes. Hello to you. <clears throat> Hello to you, Dr. David. I was uh, listening so so in rapture to your long introduction and looking back at your previous episode, and I think I lost my voice to say hello, but I'm honored to be here and thank you for having me. No worries. Hey, thank you so much. It Trust me, it happens. <laughs> Especially if you work in a career where you have to speak all the time. Um, you know, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, but I'm so glad to have you here. And uh I'm so excited about learning from you today. Um, one of the big things that I kind of promote across all of my practices is the idea of growth. Um, and I think one of our greatest powers as humans is the power of observation and then also the power of reflection and the power of insight. Uh, so we can go back and look at our observations and then change in a positive way, which I call growth. So I'm so excited to have you here today. Dr. Parker, I'm going to let you lead a little bit of this discussion. I know that you are an acclaimed uh, emergency room physician. I also know that you're a men's health advocate. I also know that you're a co-founder of the Lasting Impact Wellness Group. Um, and I know a little bit more, but tell me a little bit about yourself, the things that you're doing, the approaches of your practice and things like that. Sure. Thank you. I began my medical career in a pretty traditional way. I went to medical school in Chicago at the University of Illinois, and after that, trained in emergency medicine at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte. And emergency and everything around it spoke to me, fixing a problem right before me, seeing the entire gamut of pathophysiology that might present to an emergency department, and believe me, that is where it all goes eventually, seeing uh, gender, race, culture, financial, the, the entire demographic of society and not picking and choosing in my patient population was a critical thing for me. Uh, I was ready to work at different hours and ready to fix problems immediately. Emergency was and is a real calling for me. That said, over decades of doing it, I began to see patterns in people and in myself. And I realized that we were spending tremendous resources to fix problems in their late stages, mm. to address medical problems that were already very established and in many ways in need of mollifying, but not necessarily preventing or curing. And in that realization, I began to shift some of my focus to wondering how did this person come before me? He may have been the victim of a gunshot wound on the street, but there were circumstances that led to that. 
she may have advanced diabetes and we need to get her sugar under control urgently, if not emergently. But there were much greater socioeconomic, dietary, uh, and truly population-based conditions that led her to get diabetes in the first place. Ultimately, I had somewhat of an epiphany where I was seated at an outdoor cafe having lunch a couple of years ago, and an ambulance went screaming past. And I thought to myself, I've spent over 30 years ready to take care of anything that comes off of that ambulance. But I'd really like to spend the next few years preventing people from having to get on it. Wow. Uh, so in later years, my wife, uh, Laura, who is also an emergency physician, and I had a lot of conversations. We had conversations about how we could combine adjunctive talents that we had besides emergency medicine. She's a yoga instructor and a mindfulness expert. I uh, have dedicated a lot of time to training in uh, fitness, functional fitness, uh, some nutrition, and especially aging and longevity medicine. And we both have been fortunate to be in advanced leadership positions and communication-based roles around our emergency practices, and we decided to try to combine those other interests into a well-being company for leaders and people of all types. So in these years, we have formed Lasting Impact Wellness Group, and that's what we do. We try to enhance the health and well-being for greater effectiveness for individuals and organizations. Awesome. That's amazing. That's that's totally amazing and I like I like how you shared how that experience hearing that ambulance and that kind of insight that kind of led you to kind of alter and, and kind of rethink the journey. I love how you explained how that manifested and and how that kind of led you kind of kind of change the the trajectory of the path you know one of the things that i think um i remember when i was in medical school and 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 even after medical school there was always this algorithm that people would draw uh it was this algorithms of which specialties that that mds would go into and um and i always remember um you know and within the algorithm they'd show oh well you know people who get bored easily would go into this specialty people who would get uh you know uh, were always hyper would go into this and people who were more methodical would go into this and people who were controlling would go into this and things like that. Um, and I always kind of think about that algorithm whenever I'm speaking with or, or, or in the company of an emergency room physician. But one of the things that I think uh, in terms of like emergency medicine that I think has kind of highlighted that specialty in recent years is just the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think because, um, you know, because certain specialties were kind of on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that it just kind of changed everyone's thinking and, and, and kind of highlighted the roles of emergency room physicians. Um, you spoke a little bit about that earlier when you were talking about, you know, treating patients and addressing problems um, from a variety of different um, um, 
places and um, backgrounds and things like that. In terms of uh, emergency medicine, what do you think, um, or how do you think um, emergency medicine and that specialty was changed or affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, that's a tremendously broad question. It was pervasive in virtually every way. staffing, the dedication, the lack of resources, the lack of information, the, uh, the list is truly burgeoning even as we speak. The effects of COVID today in the emergency department are profound. Um, staffing and the strain on the hospital, the availability of beds, the availability of personnel, well, in jobs all over the country, but in healthcare in particular, it's all changed because of COVID. Uh, During the pandemic, people would ask me, have you ever seen anything like this? Of course, the answer was no, even in somebody that had been doing it for a long time. But then sometimes I would pause and think, I have seen some things that might be related. Uh, When I was in training, we, in fact, when I was in medical school, really dated myself, we learned about this novel thing called HTLV-3. Oh, wow. Which later later they decided to call HIV. By the time I was an intern, HIV patients were lining the halls of my hospital. And you thought about it all the time. There was a tremendous amount of misinformation. Frankly, there was ostracization of those patients. Uh, There was a lack of resources for them. But as that acute phase of the AIDS epidemic faded and we turned to more of a uh, prevention, furtherance of accurate information and moved on to the next epidemic, which for me was probably crack in uh, the 90s and into 2000s, Hmm. sometimes they were forgotten too. Right. And unfortunately, I did see some of those patterns and still see that those patterns repeated with COVID. And without this sounding like such a, a dark segment, I also saw many of the victories of human spirit. Uh, COVID affected the emergency department's uh, esprit de corps in negative ways, but in positive ones too. We rallied together. We found ways to support each other. Uh, We uh, lifted each other up in the commonality of fighting a common enemy when we could. And uh, those of us who still work in that arena on the other side of the greater part of the pandemic uh, find ourselves with a certain um, shared spirit, I would say. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I think one of the reasons why I bring that up, um, is because I think one of the things that's been highlighted both, um, since the COVID-19 pandemic started and even afterwards, and even today is kind of the idea of physician burnout, um, and, you know, preventing burnout, 
not just in physicians, but in other other um, workers as well. Um, preventing burnout, preventing exhaustion, uh, and those types of things. And, you know, that kind of brings me to kind of the evolution of you and what you do um, and Lasting Impact Wellness Group, etc. So tell me a little bit, tell me about Lasting Impact Wellness Group, what you do, what you don't do, um, and those kind of things. Lasting Impact is built around six pillars of well-being. First is self-awareness. We help clients to see themselves in a 360-degree way and to discover parts of themselves that perhaps they were unaware of before or maybe even benignly neglectful of before. Second is functional fitness learning to be fit to do life tasks, both for now and then uh, far into the future. Uh, The third pillar is nutrition. The fourth pillar, which is often overlooked, is sleep and recovery. The fifth pillar, speaking directly to the work that Dr. David does as well, is emotional health and relationships. Uh, the sixth pillar, which we don't spend much time on, but acknowledge is financial stability, as it is such a profound concern for so many. So utilizing those pillars, not in a completely exclusive way, but as a basis, what we do is uh, assess and work with clients to shore up the portions of themselves, which may not be as successful as others. Uh, we have many clients who are crushing it at work but neglecting their health or are disengaged from work um, but have a good marriage or any combination you can think of but are a less than complete version of themselves we're ready and work frequently with people that are highly successful and some who are not but are just a step away Uh, We have different looks at things between Laura and myself. She is also an emergency physician and similarly trained, as I mentioned, but she also has different fortes, uh, is female, and is a a bit different age as well. And we sometimes can speak specifically to uh, clients' needs from our individual perspectives. Awesome. Um, I love those six pillars. Uh, I think that's a great, a great concept, a great approach, uh, and the 360 degrees, um, which is something I think is, is really, really important um, because of, you know, the concept of approaching things from a multidimensional standpoint. Um, so I think when you come up with solutions that are multi-pronged uh, from different angles, I think you tend to have better long-term results um in terms of uh your uh six pillars and and kind of the 360 degree approach that you take with your clients um in terms of the types of clients that you see what are some of the most common reasons why people come to see you i would say one of the most common 
reasons that people come is because they realize that something is missing. They realize that what they're doing is unsustainable, even if they are highly successful in some way. Uh, they are often in the business of trading health for wealth. Uh. And uh, so I think all of us, as we gain greater self-awareness, become aware and self-forgiving, self-forgiving of ourselves for uh, not being perfect in every way, but we become aware that we really are doing well in some ways, and sometimes that light shines sideways on things that we're not. And I think that realization of an imbalance and that something is missing is the primary reason that people come to see us. Awesome. You know, I, I totally, I totally, um, I totally understand that. And that's one of the reasons why one of the guiding, uh, the guiding lights of my practices um, is the seesaw principle. Uh, and that's just kind of based on the whole concept of balance versus imbalance. And one of my primary approaches um which sounds very similar to yours is to help people come into balance because generally speaking a lot of times people don't live lives that are balanced across all dimensions usually they're doing really well in one area but could stand some improvement in another those kind of things one of the reasons why um i kind of love the fact that i have you uh and have have uh you know you as an expert for my listeners today and also for your listeners is just kind of the whole concept of men's health. Um, you know, as someone who graduated from medical school in 2010, um, I think that, um, I think kind of the concept of like men's health and women's health and adolescent health and all those things have, have come into the forefront of, of kind of how we approach different groups and cohorts um, in, in healthcare and in medicine and things like that. Um, tell me about your kind of thoughts and your thinking and some of the, some of the beliefs that you have regarding men's health and advocating for, for good health in men. Well, in many cases, health is health. Uh, if I say that smoking is bad, that is, uh, certainly extends across uh, gender and across age for that matter. Some unique things in terms of men's health is that men often, it's always dangerous to speak in generalities, but right. men often neglect their health even more right. than women. Women are often the head of a household. They are placed in a role of looking out for others' health as a regular uh, part of being a mother, uh, for example, um, they uh, may have more exposure through their typically consumed media to health-related issues. Uh, men have a tendency to blow these things off uh, and not attend to it, and it's sometimes in, in certain stereotypes seen as a sign of weakness. Right. I don't. I don't want to acknowledge that I need help. I don't want to acknowledge that certain parts of me are not working as well as they did before, whether it's your eyesight or in the bedroom or uh, how fast you can get upstairs or uh, anything. So there are many things that 
um, sociologically pertain to men's health in, in particular. And then, of course, as you get further into specific disease entities and the way that they can be prevented, there are uh, sex-specific or gender-specific um, things to be reckoned with there. Uh, certainly, testicular cancer or things that are unique to male patients, but testosterone, what uh, cancers might be a risk what your most likely uh, trauma sources might be. All kinds of things have a male-female predilection or emphasis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's I think, uh, I know one of the things that I see a lot, um, both with, with my own clients and also in, in the consulting work that I do, um, and forensic and addiction psychiatry is one of the things um, that I've noticed, especially um, especially when it comes to um, to men, is it kind of uh, the stoicism, the stoic character, uh, the the um, the kind of perspective uh, and, and concept that you've got to be strong all the time. You can't show any vulnerability. You can't show any weakness. You've got to be kind of the pillar. Uh, the foundation, those types of things. And, you know, because of that, especially when it comes to mental health issues, um, you know, and things like depression come to mind, uh, a lot of times, um, you know, men tend to uh, put those things off or be in a state of denial um, more so than women do. Um, It seems like in general, uh, and like you said, I, it's, it, you, don't, you want to be careful about speaking in generalities, but one of the concepts that I've kind of noticed is when it comes to kind of acknowledging some things that could be improved or fixed or that are, in other words, broken or in need of repair, that women tend to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more willing to acknowledge uh, that there's some things that could be improved and that they that they need actually help in doing that um in terms of uh in terms of like you know longevity uh and wellness and things like that you know one of the things that i that i think is kind of at the forefront of of healthcare, but it's in some ways kind of an, the elephant in the room too is the fact that people are living longer uh, and we have more advanced things that we can do in healthcare to manage chronic medical conditions, acute conditions, disorders, diseases, illnesses, and things like that. Um, in terms of some of the trends, in terms of you know aging and people living longer, what are some of the what are some of the kind of concepts and approaches that you think that are important? in terms of people living longer than they used to in the past? It's a fascinating topic. If you go back 100 years, our lifespan as a people has increased significantly. But most of those gains have come in relatively narrow areas. There have been tremendous gains because of better water quality, nutrition, Uh, industrial standards, vaccines, various things like that. 
but it's largely around infectious disease where we have had tremendous gains in life expectancy in the last 100 to 150 years right because of because of antibiotics right in terms of what's most likely to kill people cardiovascular disease stroke cancer between those three things that accounts for well over half of deaths we have made progress but not tremendous progress and we have a long way to go and in fact there's evidence that we are sliding backwards to some degree greater rates of diabetes and obesity uh, dietary changes moving away from whole foods of the past to processed foods of the present um, large increases in smoking in the last hundred years even though that has uh, cut back you know, there are ebbs and flows and factors involved in longevity we are living longer until we run into a pandemic we are running long we are living longer until we run into an epidemic like opioid overdose we have all kinds of factors that are at play in terms of we as a species able to live longer and that of course is only talking about the number of years one lives not one's health span in other words the number of healthy years unencumbered by disease and perhaps optimal health span where we're talking about unencumbered by disease but also achieving a greater holistic uh, state of well-being so great trends we like to live longer we like to be healthy longer we haven't made as much progress as we think we have on the things that may be some of our greatest threats absolutely absolutely and I, I love how you covered the basis with the uh, the things, uh, the major things that kind of affect mortality and morbidity, cancer, strokes, cardiovascular disease, and, and infectious diseases, things like that. Um, May I uh, just add something to that, which I think is, I, I loved your term, it's the elephant in the room, as elephants do tend to live a long time. <laughs> they, also have, they also have a great, great memory. Absolutely. But the thing I wanted to add, which is, if we live a lot longer than we did 100 years ago, are we happier? Right. Are we less stressed? Have we, as a people, really devoted ourselves more thoroughly to our own emotional health, to our relationships, to our social fabric, and lifting each other up? I think all those things, yes, there are. Uh, pockets of great success but they also highlight the fact that we have lots of work to do and they those uh, parts of well-being um, weigh heavily on our overall longevity and our health span absolutely absolutely and um, <laughs> I love uh, I'm an I'm a huge animal lover, so I love how you brought the uh, the 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 elephant in the room out again um, um, because uh, uh, you know when you look at animals um, and um, the rest of the animal kingdom, in some ways you know we have so much to learn from them, and you know even in recent years they've done a lot of studies on you know, kind of multiple intelligences and emotional intelligences and things like that. And a lot of times when they look at other species like dolphins or elephants and things like that, you know, they'll find, um, you know, higher degrees of, of emotional intelligence and things like that. That's a great segue into 
something I'd really, um, I've been um, really wanting to ask you about that I think is really, really important in terms of um, taking a proactive approach. It sounds like, um, you know, from what you shared at the beginning of this podcast episode was the notion, the, 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 the distinction or the contrast between seeing things, um, you know, as an expert in emergency medicine on the front lines after things have kind of gone wrong versus kind of preventing them or being proactive in the first place. Um, and, you know, proactivity and prevention and preemptiveness is a big part of what I try to uh, instill in my clients, um, whether it's related to diet and nutrition or if it's rated, uh, related to like lifestyle choices or just kind of planning for change in the future. One of the things that, one of the big concepts that I bring up in my book, The Nutrient Diet, is this notion that unless, in terms of what you're going to eat or your diet uh, or your meals, your meal planning for the next day or the following week, if you don't plan it ahead, you're probably going to default back to the regular behavior that you have. Uh, or the re- regular behavior pattern. And so one of the big things that I talk about in the book is that you've got to plan it ahead. You've got to plan the meal that you're going to have tomorrow, today. Or you've got to plan the meals that you're going to have for next week, this week. And you've got to do your you know, your meal prep and your meal planning ahead of time. So the whole idea of proactivity, what I found, makes a big difference in my client's ability to change the narrative and to shift the paradigm in terms of their health habits and lifestyle choices. What do you think is one of the, uh, what are some of the big things that you feel have been um, kind of pearls of wisdom when it comes to you enabling your clients to make changes in their lifestyle choices and behaviors? I was struck by a discussion in one of your recent podcasts, uh, a quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but from uh, Johannes, the the, trainer. Yes. uh, He said words to the effect that motivation may come and go, but discipline will keep you going. Yes. And it's a great quote, and while I largely agree with it, um, I'd also... I don't think that's at odds with things that you espouse, for example, in your book about um, the key to weight management and impulse control is habit and ritual creation over time. Yes. Gradual and sustainable change. That, in many ways, is discipline whether it happens immediately or not, sometimes discipline can take on a tone of, from now on, you're only doing X. (laughs) Right. Whereas gradual and sustainable change that is sustainable is discipline. And uh, that will keep you going if you have gotten there through um, science, awareness, um, come and go motivation and uh, thoughtfulness and dedication that, that becomes your lifestyle, and that to me is is discipline. So I think those are some of the tenets that we use is that you're going to get to what works for you, but you're going to need to do some thinking, and you're going to need to do some soul searching, and you're going to need to uh, take a heavy dose of practicality to find out exactly what that is. But then once you're there, 
it, it doesn't it doesn't hurt so bad. It doesn't it isn't difficult. It's just your way of doing things, and that is what becomes sustainable. Oh my god, I love that. I love the way that you explain that, and I I totally agree with that because I you know one of the one of the trends that that I've seen so much of uh, lately. And I've had a lot of clients who have, you know, come to me recently with this is, is kind of like the notion of people vaping, um, you know, as you know, and as I recall too, um, you know, smoking started to become laissez-faire in the 80s and 90s. And then it's just kind of gradually gone on the decline, uh, at least in the form of cigarettes. But now it's become in fashion to some extent for people to vape it because you don't have some of the traditional things that are associated with cigarette smoking, like smoker's breath and smoker's teeth and, you know, smoker's clothing and just all those kind of things. Um, you know, during the eighties and nineties, there was a concerted, there were concerted, uh, social media or, or television campaigns in order to show people some of the the negative effects of smoking. I remember some of those vivid images that I had. Um, um, and during a podcast episode, uh, a couple of podcast episodes where I actually talked about addiction, um, I mentioned that. And in a lot of ways, what I've found is because, um, and from a behavioral standpoint, because smoking became laissez-faire and it became limited, uh, smoking cigarettes, that is, it became limited in terms of where people could do it and whether they wanted to be seen and shame and things like that. Um, people would smoke periodically, especially people who had, you know, a busy career and things like that. So they would you know, smoke every three hours or smoke every four hours or five hours or, you know, those types of things. But because of the difference between smoking cigarettes and vaping, people would just vape all day. And some of my clients you know, I would have them to create a log of their habits, just like they would create a log of anything else. Um, and they would realize that they would, you know, vape every five minutes. It's almost kind of like, almost like having an IV. They would just do it all day constantly. And they would think that they were vaping 20 or 30 times a day. And it turned out they were, you know, vaping 180 times a day. Uh, and it's just one of the kind of uh, things. But that kind of brings me to the concept um, that I think you just kind of highlighted with what you said uh, and is one of the concepts that I, I try to, um, I try to uh, instill in my clients is the notion of trial and error and they're being willing to fail in order to succeed. Uh, one of the things that, one of the trends that I kind of have seen in recent years is where, you know, it's kind of the notion that, if something's not guaranteed, then somebody's not going to do it. And when, it, especially when it comes to, you know, addictive habits like smoking cigarettes and things like that, I always tell people be, even though I'm going to do everything I can to help you quit smoking the first time around, be willing to fail, be willing to fail a hundred times so that you can quit. Uh, and it, it is usually the case that with a lot of people who are trying to quit smoking or to change some other, lifestyle habit uh, that's not beneficial to them in the short term or the long term, that it does take a couple of approaches um, to doing that. In terms of the work that you do and the clients that you see um, and things like that, what are some of the trends that you've seen in recent years that you think that need to be addressed as we go forward? 
Well, there are a number of them. Uh, first, you know, more popularized and pervasive is uh, our diet. Uh, highly processed foods, uh, the incorporation of elements that are really not good for us, high fructose corn syrup being an example, and you know, those have come to light and to some degree have been reduced or removed, but very processed foods to me, hey, you know, I, I, I like processed foods. That's because they're designed for you to like them. Right. But for them to be a primary source of diet for many, many Americans has led to greater degrees of metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and diabetes. Uh, opiate consumption and overdose is a real threat in America. It's the number one cause of death in people under 50. And that's real. It's not something that just occurs on skid row. That isn't my problem. Those are just those people that chew drugs. This is a problem that extends to every population and is insidiously creeping into what was thought to be benign recreational drug use and it's taking lives at a breathtaking pace. So are other forms of violence, so are other forms of sedentary living, so are other forms of misinformation, so are other forms of extraordinary emotional duress brought on by uh, some social media use. Um, there are all kinds of threats to ourselves, but we've had a lot of threats over time, and we as a species have been quite resilient. Unfortunately, there's a lot of pain inflicted in way to uh, Resilience Island, and uh, those are just some of the ones that we face today. Very true. Very true. So let me ask a, um, a couple of questions about that, and then we'll kind of wrap up things. Um, in terms of... Uh, you know, diet, um, in terms of, uh, you know, highly processed foods and some of the additives and some of the things that are put into the things that we consume. Um, what are some of the big, uh, what are some of the big things that you, um, that you recommend for your clients in terms of those things or what to watch for and those types of, 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 uh, subjects and topics? In terms of nutrition, this can really fire people up. Yes. People get very impassioned over whatever their method is of eating. But to some degree, that's because some of them are right. Uh, there are certain types of eating that might really be the correct answer for certain individuals. But there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to diet in my view. It's, and I don't really like to use the word dieting, I use the term eating. Right. What kind of fuel do you put into your body on a regular basis? There are some adages that I think can be cliche, but sometimes that's because they're true too. I do like the one that says, if it's a plant, uh, you can probably eat it. If it was manufactured in a plant, then maybe you ought to think twice. <laughs> uh, so whole foods, foods that your grandmother would recognize the ingredients in that dish, in me, to me, speaking in generalities, are better. Right. Um, 
I prefer to think of these things in one easy analogy. I, I'm a, a car guy. One of the side things that I do as a hobby is I restore old vehicles. Oh, wow. And nice. So I, I, a lot of things I couch in those kinds of metaphors. So the kind of fuel you use matters. Right. You use dirty, uh, three-year-old gas can sitting out rusting in the sun, and you put that in your vehicle versus you use fresh gasoline, uh, even though now I drive an electric truck. But <laughs> a, you, uh, if you use good gas or bad gas, it matters. Right. And then how you burn that fuel makes a big difference. Right. If you put bad fuel into your head and your mind and your emotions, they're inefficient. They generate a lot of heat. Yes. They, uh, they're, they're bad for you. They create wear and tear. If you burn that fuel in your body, mostly in terms of storage by failing to move it or failing to exercise it, then you're also going to generate a lot of heat and wear and tear and inefficiency. The place where that analogy really breaks down, that metaphor breaks down, is the magic of the human nature is the more miles we put on this vehicle, the stronger it gets. We get stronger by moving more. Right. We get more resilient by thinking positive thoughts and adjusting our thoughts, behaviors, and feelings in, in cognitive behavioral therapy and so on and so on. We can build up the resilience of this vehicle we call us whereas you know at least in my garage no matter how much i restore it over time there is going to be wear and tear right and breakdown but good fuel in to the mind and good fuel into the body that's efficiently used results in greater strength and resilience absolutely 100 percent and that's one of the concepts that I strongly, strongly believe is it's kind of like a foundational concept of my practice is, is, is the notion of uh, input equals output. If, if you put in the wrong stuff, you're going to get out the wrong stuff. There's just no way around it. So I love that. The other thing that you mentioned a minute ago, which I also wanted to ask you about, which I think is at the forefront of healthcare and wellness in this country, is the, the opioid epidemic and kind of, you know, kind of the rise of deaths, uh, mortality, uh, and also morbidity too, but but especially as you highlighted it, mortality in terms of opioids and things like that. In terms of kind of going forward, uh, looking at some of the data and look at the statistics and looking at, you know, what we've been observing with opioids for the past few decades, um, you know, as an expert in emergency medicine and also an expert in men's health and wellness coaching and things like that. What are some of the things that you think that we should do going forward in order to curb and prevent opioid related deaths? Well, uh, I must say, Dr. David, you asked some very um, incisive <laughs> and evocative <laughs> questions. <laughs> Let me see if I can up with a good analogy for that one again car based but if you were trying to get people to wear their seatbelt on the regular right well you'd make it really easy to put the seatbelt on 
Absolutely. You would, you would make sure that they were required on all cars and they would be easy to put on. But you would also educate people with real science showing that if you wear it, you're less likely to die or mess yourself up. Right. You'd educate the public about why it might be a good idea. The Click It or Ticket program was actually started by a colleague of mine at the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. And wow. Like, oh, my seatbelt. That's a little pain, man. But, you know, most people wear their seatbelts these days. Right. Lastly, you would have some measure, some measure of enforcement. Not always punitive, but some sort of public monitoring of the situation to decide what resources were most important next and perhaps some consequences for people that don't do whatever behavior you're trying to change that has implications for others. The societal implications of um, opioid use, for example, are just tremendous. But criminalizing it alone, that's not going to fix it. Uh, educating people to death over how bad it is, that's not going to fix it. Making it easy for people to have alternatives, uh, making it easy for some people to have their life saved by having Narcan available, all those things, uh, a, tri a triumvirate, if you will, of engineering, of education, and to some degree of enforcement is typically the way that these kinds of things are solved. The combination in that recipe, though, varies greatly between different entities. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for that 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 great multi pronged answer again. I like I like how you approach things from several different prongs. Uh, at least a tripod, um, which makes something more likely to kind of stand up, right? Um, I'm going to ask you one more question too. Hopefully, you have time for one more question. Um, but because you've given so much insight about so many things, um, one big thing, and then we'll kind of wrap up. One other big thing that I think is kind of become emergent in terms of trends and things like that is the concept of people being addicted to technology. Um, and I certainly have my share of clients who come to me because, you know, basically they can't stop scrolling. Uh, they're on Instagram they intend to be on it for five minutes and next thing they look up, it's, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, but people are basically, you know, hooked on technology, addicted to technology, uh, addicted to social media platforms, hyper-focused on what's going on in other people's lives. Um, you know, people presenting with, you know, imposter syndrome because of comparing what they perceive is going on with their life compared to what they see on social media platforms, things like that. In terms of, you know, kind of your experience and, you know, having children and things like that. Um, do you, do you believe that, um, you know, people being addicted to technology and devices and things like that um, is a problem these days that we need to confront? I think it's a tremendous problem. I see symptoms of it in so many people and a true affliction in many others. And I am constantly wrestling with it myself. I mean, there is a tremendous irony here, Dr. David. You and I are making a podcast. True. Right? You know, true. It's going to be consumed and true. promoted on social media. True. It's got 
good sides and bad sides. <laughs> but for many of the things you described there and alluded to, social media has become the substitute for good relationships. Yes. Face-to-face interactions for the ability to express oneself oneself verbally effectively for more than 140 characters or later (laughs) a certain number of seconds. Right. And and there is no substitute for direct personal interaction. I would probably end that answer by saying there have been a lot of studies of centenarians, people with extraordinarily long, healthy lives over 100 years, what are the two things that are probably the most potent and um, consistent factors that they have found in the study of these so-called blue zones? The first is activity. These people are moving. They're right. climbing up and down stone steps. They're constantly you know, making their food or farming or they're walking places all the time. They're active. The second is their relationships. There is a social network to them that does not involve a screen. It involves friendships, uh, social networking with your neighbors, with the people around you, with your uh, people involved in in your spirituality, with uh, your peer group, uh, with the next generation, with each other but it is in no way mediated through a screen in terms of people that have lived long and happy and healthy lives. That happiness and health has been mediated by activity and direct face-to-face interaction. Screens are no part of that equation. I totally agree with that. And I like how you brought the focus back to um, two things, activity and relationships. And I think those are kind of the the foundation the stepping stones in terms of longevity and in terms of growth and in terms of having a healthy relationship with the environment around us with that um i'd like to wrap up thank you so much dr park uh dr parker hayes for being a guest today i'd like to share with everyone um um and i'll let him tell you a little bit more about it too but uh, Dr. Parker Hayes, in addition to being, you know, an ER physician, an expert on men's health, uh, an expert on sustainable wellness and longevity, um, and those kind of things, Dr. Uh, Hayes also has his podcast, Lasting Impact Wellness. Um, he has he's got thousands of followers there. Uh, Dr. Parker also, uh, Dr. Parker Hayes also does speaking events uh, and and education and things like that. Um, and I would love to advocate for, um, for people to reach out to, to, uh, Dr. Hayes, uh, in his area or beyond. Uh, and so Dr. Hayes, if you would please share how the listeners can get in touch with you. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. Uh, please find us on the web at lastingimpactwellness.com. Uh, and, uh, Instagram is at Lasting Impact Wellness. If anyone wants to drop us a line or send a, uh, a hello or an inquiry or ideas for podcast, it's info at lastingimpactwellness.com. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. And uh, I, I strongly encourage everyone to check out uh, Dr. Hayes' podcast, Lasting Impact Wellness. I will definitely be tuning in and subscribing and listening to his podcast and gaining uh, some more knowledge and, and wisdom and, and, and kind of golden nuggets and pearls and things like that. Thank you so much for being a guest again, Dr. Hayes. It was a pleasure having you, and I have learned so much from what you've shared today. It is definitely my honor to be here, Dr. David. May I say that I am very appreciative of the work you do for so many. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. And you, you as well, you as well. I have so much respect for people who are on the front lines uh, and who've been on the front lines. And thank you so much for your service and dedication to the medical profession. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye to everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today's episode with Dr. Parker Hayes. It's been it's been really, really a delight uh, to get some answers and some wisdom from him today. Definitely check out his podcast, Lasting Impact Wellness, and subscribe to it. Um, and also, you can get in touch with him using the information he just provided. Um, if you'd like to schedule an appointment or if you'd like further information from him about a wellness or other issue. So thank you so much and you guys take care. Bye-bye.